We are back in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. I read an article this week that chronicled a family of five in Brazil that had rescued and raised seven large Bengal tigers. And they live in their home. Five people in the home, two parents and three grown adult children and seven tigers. The article went on to say they've even introduced their one-year-old granddaughter to them, letting her ride the tiger and pet the tiger. One of the daughters said this, quote, ever since the tigers were born, they had three of them that were born there, she said, we have taken care of them, feeding them, so their instincts became dormant. It seems as though as they've successfully tamed these wild beasts, uh, they have brought these, in, these fiercest predators into their home to be just like them, sleeping on their beds, eating meals out of their hand, they believe they have domesticated this incredible animal. There's a video, in fact, of showing this, his family, and it's, it was eerie to watch it. These large tigers just roaming through their home and with a kid nearby and laying next to them and, and them petting them. And, and I think at any point, they're gonna lean over and bite your head off. You know, when I read this article and see this video, I just shake my head because I know that someday things will not work they think, the way they think it will. That, that tiger was not created to be a pet in their home. He has a different purpose altogether. And that they believe that they've brought the mighty under their control and power, but one day that animal will overpower them and it will have devastating effects. I wonder if this sometimes we believe the same in regards to God. Have we domesticated God? You know, our culture moves farther and faster away from God. We still have this fascinating adoration for the holiday of Christmas. The world has domesticated a version of God that they can put on their mantle. Manger scenes and angels to put on top of their Christmas tree but certainly not the man who hung on a cross as the Lord of the universe. Have we taken God lightly? You know, we use that word lightly to mean to not take something seriously. Obviously, we've become reasonable people, they say. The question is, have we domesticated God? Have we made God light, meaning not very serious, making him reasonable to our lives? Of course, when you say that you take something lightly, the opposite then is that you take other things serious or heavy. We talk about weighty ideas, a, a heavy heart or heavy losses or the, the gravity of a situation. And when we use these terms, we're talking about glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which comes from the same root word kabad, which means heavy or weighty. The word glory in the Bible and its original reference is a physical reference to physical heaviness and, and weight. This is what the word means. Now, let me give you an example. I, I talked about this last year when we were in the Gospel of John and John 12. We talked about glory, but I'll give it to you again. The oceans that we can experience are glorious. They're literally glorious. Think about it. You stand before the ocean. You cannot see the other side. You, you cannot see the end of what you're looking at. It's unending to you. And if you're to 
today drive an hour and a half, two hours west to get to the Pacific Ocean, and you walk out to the beach, and you look, you sit down, you see water. That's all you see. Never-ending water. You know, though, that Tokyo is 5,000 miles away, but you can't see it. It's expansive. It's, it's huge. And if you sit there and take it in, it's glorious. And you look at yourself compared to the hugeness of that ocean, and you feel so, so small. The glory of God is his weight, his, his substance, his gravity. God's glory is his weightiness. And of course, God doesn't have a body, so it's not literal weight. It, so it means his glory is this seriousness that he must be taken. So with all that said, we enter into the fourth chapter of the book of 1 Samuel when we talk about glory. I want to give you my entire hand as I start here. Walk through the text this morning. We're going to look at how we cannot use God for our own personal gain. So that's my first point. No one will use God. And how the people of Israel did this and then paid the consequences. And the second thing I want you to see is that you will never be able to steal glory from God. He will never let that happen. So the second point is you can't rob God of glory. He will get his glory. So that's the two points we're going to cover this morning. Pretty simple. No one will use God. You can't rob God of glory. And so I want to read the text together. I'll read, you follow, and then we'll pray. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of, of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought the, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the, as the, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened, has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? 
And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set, so he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured because her father-in-law and husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. God, I recognize this morning that this is a heavy text. A difficult, weighty text to, to walk through. As we have the last few weeks, God, you've allowed us to, to learn and to study and to be warned time and again of how we should live in this world. And as we walk through chapter four this morning, God, I pray that you would teach us, that you would bring understanding to us, and bring conviction to us mold us and change us in this time this morning that we could worship through the preaching of your word, that we would recognize that no one will use you. No one will rob you of your glory. May we be aware of that this morning. May we be impacted by your word this morning. And may you be glorified in it all. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So my first point, as I mentioned, is no one will use God. As we come to the beginning of chapter four, the author gives us a transition. He says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You know, this is his way of saying that there's gonna be a changing of the guard in Israel. For the people to move on, the wicked leaders will need to be removed. It's interesting, though, that Samuel isn't mentioned again after this until chapter seven. And so for the next three chapters, we will see what happens when the prophet of God is not leading the people. And it's not good. But what happens next? It says there, continuing on, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. The Philistines were a nation descended from the Egyptians. You can read about it in Genesis 10 or 1 Chronicles 1. And at this point in their history, they had settled... No on the, the coastal strip of Palestine, about 22 miles west of Shiloh. And they had become the main threat to Israel. And we're gonna hear a lot of them in this book. And as you read in this story in chapter four, things do not go well for Israel. 
They decide to enter this battle with the Philistines. We're not told why. We can infer that the Philistines pressed in on them, and so we'll see. But in all of this, God is behind it. But things don't go well. Where was God in this? You know, Israel doesn't believe that they were defeated by the Philistines. You hear it in their words in verse 3. They say, and when the people came to the camp, the elders said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? This is the right question to ask. But I believe they answered it too quickly. They, they should have let that question sit there and, and hang above them and, and, and bother them and prick them and think through it. They should have thought long and hard how to answer. And they should have sought what God's word said. If you go to Leviticus 26, 14, and 14 through 17, it says, but if you will not listen to me, and will not do these commandments if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. I didn't consult God's word. They didn't recognize where they were as a nation. Instead of churning over this question and seeking counsel from God, they brainstorm. How can we beat them? Let's see. Well, we didn't prepare well enough for battle, so how can we prepare better this time? Oh, yes. Let's bring the ark. Go get the box, that old good luck charm. Bring it out. That's what they say. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. That it, that, that this piece of furniture will defend us. Not God. The Ark of the Covenant, what is that? The Bible dictionary says it was a rectangular box made of wood and measured uh, three and three quarter feet long and two and one quarter feet wide and high. And the hole was covered with gold and was carried on poles inserted in rings at four lower corners. The lid, or the mercy seat, was a gold plate surrounded by two placed cherubs without spread wings. It was impressive to look at. What did it hold? It held two tablets of stone that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, a covenant. You know, when you get married in the state of Washington... You must sign a license in front of the witnesses and then they send it to the state. And you know what happens? The state gets a copy and you get a copy. Why? Because both remember the covenant, the commitment that was made in that day and the same for God's covenant with his people. One for him, one for them. And in verse four, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the ark of the covenant suggested the rulership of God as we read in verse four. And these cherubim were represented. They, they attached in the lid of the ark of a winged, a superhuman creature. And the ark also communicated reconciliation because the lid of the ark, traditionally called the mercy seat, was sprinkled yearly with the blood of sacrifices. And so all of this, the, the ark pointed to God as the ruling and speaking and forgiving God. But even more than that, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. At least it should have been. But what about its power? Do you remember in 1981 when Hollywood capitalized on the story of the Ark? Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Have you seen it? A young Harrison Ford. Do you remember the movie in the Ark? The Ark is described as the source of unrivaled power that Hitler and the Nazis want to utilize for themselves. And in the movie, Marcus Brody, Indiana Jones' right-hand man, summarizes the, the ominous stakes for the one who holds the power of this religious artifact. He says this, an army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. And the remainder of the movie is the pursuit of this artifact, which concludes with the Nazis gaining control of it. And in the finale of the movie, do you remember the finale? They decide to open the Ark, and uh, the power of God is unleashed. It wipes out the Nazis. It, it literally melts their faces off. Lightning shooting through them. This is Hollywood's take on the Ark of the Covenant. But I wonder if this is the elders' take on the covenant. I wonder if that's what they thought. You know, the elders think, let's just get the box. We need, we need this out here. If we get this out here, things will go better for us. You know, maybe they're remembering Israel's past victories with the, the river stopping in Joshua 3 and Joshua 4. Remember they're remembering the destruction of Jericho in, in Joshua 6. And maybe they're just thinking, we need to go back to the old days. We need the old faith. We need to experience the, the Yahweh's old-time deliverance. And so they bring it out. And it says, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there when the Ark of the Covenant of God. We know who they are, right? This isn't good news, is it? God had a plan for them, right? They plan to bring out the ark to get the victory, and God plans to bring punishment to the sons and to Eli and ultimately to Israel. It's customary that the ark would be carried by the priests. They would be carrying it out, and who do we have here? If Hophni and Phinehas the wicked sons of Eli carrying the ark. Verse five, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They think that they can use God for their own benefit. Surely they would gain a victory. Now the ark is here and it's being carried out by the priests. Those priests the people don't seem to mind. No, instead they give a mighty shout that resounds. Why do they shout? I believe because they think they're safe. They've got the secret weapon, they think. They're covered. The ark is here. Their assumption is that if they bring the ark to the battlefield, Yahweh will be forced to deliver us and to protect his honor. And they put their power in a piece of furniture, not God. They put glory in a golden box and dismiss God. And what they're doing is they're trying to force the hand of God. It's, it's like when we're young. I remember this. I thought through this this week. And, and I wanted to borrow a vehicle from my parents. And, and I didn't have a vehicle. So, so I would go ask my dad before the plans were made. And I wasn't sure, too, too sure if he'd say yes or not. Depending upon how late I was going to be. And. And there's other times where I was for sure knowing he would say no. So what did I do? I would go tell my friends that I'll drive. 
this is the plan. I'll drive, and then I'll go ask Dad. And I'll say, Dad, they're all counting on me. What are you going to do? I put him in that position. You know, I don't want him to lose faith. Dad, you don't want to lose honor with my friends. You don't want to think that you're just not a cool dad. And then, Dad, you're going to put me in this position. Now, what am I going to look like? That's manipulation. This is Israel to God. They, they try to corner God. And what happens? Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Listen, church, God will not be used by man. And here's the truth of the situation. God is willing to suffer shame rather than letting you carry on a false pretense of a relationship with him. God will even let you be disappointed with him if that wakes you up to who God really is. Do you have this rabbit foot theology that one commentator said? Not faith, but superstition. If I pray, things will go better. If I give money, things will go smoothly. If I read my Bible every morning, then I will understand everything in life perfectly. If I attend church, then opportunities will open up for me. If I serve, then I'll get noticed. And deep down, we cling to the idea that if we're good and we do all the right things, then everything will go well for us. But that's not in the Bible. It isn't true. And are we saying to an onlooking world, God is worthy, or are we saying God is useful? It's very possible for us to Treat God like he's our waiter. He's the waiter in the restaurant of our lives. You know, you know what that's like, right? You've been to a restaurant. You sit down with your friends and your family and you enjoy a meal together and good food and good fellowship and all the time you ignore the waiter. He's just there to serve you. Can I get a refill now? I'm all out. Oh man, I am full. Can you take away my plate, please? Wow, this is really good. I would love some dessert. Can you get that for me? See, the, the waiter doesn't sit down with you for the meal. He's not part of the event. They serve you. And you call them over when you want something. Do you treat God that way? He's not really a part of your life. I mean, he's there because we talk to him and we ask for things and we praise him and we receive things, but he's really not a part of our life. We call him when we need help, but we really don't take him that seriously. We don't give him glory or weight in our life. 
How serious are you about God? God is not there for you. We are here for God. There's a big difference to that. We are made in his image, not the other way around. The world does not revolve around us. No, God must be at the center of our world. He must be central. God's glory must be at the center. And we need to recognize the weight of glory. We need to take God seriously in all of life. And the men of Israel didn't. These elders allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be carried by two men that everyone knew were wicked. And I can't help but sitting there during the week reading this thinking, what is wrong with them? And we cannot expect the blessings of God if we persist to not walk in his holiness. God will have no rivals. In the book of Nahum, prophesying against the wickedness of, of Nineveh, he says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes his vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are dust on his feet. God is faithful to his words. He's faithful to the words that were spoken earlier in this book. None of his words will fall to the ground. Now let me ask, as we read last week, is this enough to make your ears tingle? God's holiness will not be mocked. And no one can use God for their selfish gain. That's the first point. The second point is you can't rob God of glory. So you're part of a church, a good church. This church has rich history. There have been many that have walked through the doors of this church and been faithful to God. Ministers and saints alike, they have loved the Lord and have given their lives to service for God. And when members of the church get their paychecks, they're careful to give back to God first, not because they're forced, because they love the Lord and they want to give to the ministry. And husbands and wives love each other. They look to serve the church, giving not only the money, but their time and their energy. They want others to join in in the service to God in the church. And the minister has, has served there faithfully, but he knows that his time will soon end. And as God would have it, the minister has two sons who show desire to take on the family business. They want to pastor the flock. And as they grow, their dad shows them the ropes, teaching them what the, their job will be and how important it is for them to lead these people. And it seems natural for all the members of the church to have these sons take over for the father. So they, they go along with what's happening. And soon the sons are in their teenage years and received more and more responsibility in the church. They begin to teach and to serve and, and collecting a wage now for what they do. But as the sons observe others in the world, they realize that they're underpaid and they're unfulfilled. And their friends at church are outraged. They vow to help them. And so they sit down and concoct a plan to get more. First, they begin by helping when the offering is taken at church. Instead of walking the money directly to the safe, they take a little off the top for themselves. Just a little bit for the first few weeks and then more and more the next month and the next month. Soon, they just take what they want. In fact, while the baskets are being passed in the service, 
the sons just take out of the bag and put in their pocket. Right in front of the people. All the while, the pastor, their father, serving right before them, he says nothing. And more importantly, he does nothing. Next, the boys get more greedy. Not just stealing money, but they desire to gratify their flesh. And they see women serving at the church that they think are beautiful. And so they manipulate them to sleep with them. They pressure them, and out of fear, the women agree. So these two young men are living for themselves not caring who they hurt along the way. And you ask, what about the, the pastor? What about the father? Where is he through all of this? And he hears of it, he, and he tries to tell them to stop, but they won't. They both marry someone in the church, but they continue in their evil ways, stealing and sleeping. And the pastor, now very old, has lost all motivation to remove them. He's busy getting fat on all the food that's put in the office every week mysteriously. And the elders, what about them? They do nothing also. In fact, they still expect the two sons to do their work, even allowing them to hold what is most precious, the word of God for the people. What should be God's response? What would your response be? In verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with the dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Eli and his sons played with fire and they got burned. There's a play on words here in this passage. A description of old Eli in verse 18 tells us that he was heavy. If you remember earlier, the Hebrew word for heavy is kabed, the verb form of kabod, glory. Eli had been the glory, the kabod of Israel, her priest, teacher, mediator, representative. But the glory of old Eli had become no more than the bulk of it had killed him. And where is the glory? Where is the glory? It's around Eli's waist. Dead by the side of the road. No one will rob God of his glory. Remember in chapter 2, verse 29, God has said to Eli, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? When the people offered their animal sacrifice, do you remember this? The fat should have been burned off. The priests could eat the cooked meat that was given them, but the fat belonged to God. It was his but Eli's sons wanted a juicy roast, so they took that three-pronged fork and thrust it into the meat before the fat had burned off. 
Eli's family had fattened themselves and the fat that belonged to God, they had glorified themselves. They had stolen from God and kept the glory. And now God made sure that everyone knew that you cannot rob God of his glory. The story isn't done. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of Covenant was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband are dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The wife of Phineas, this poor, wretched wife married to that wicked man dies in childbirth. Before she dies, she names the child. He will forever be remembered as Ichabod, meaning where is the glory? Her reasoning is that the glory had departed from Israel. The question asked each time the child is called by name, where is the glory? And the answer is the glory has departed. Where is the glory? Well, in one sense, as I said, it was stolen by Eli's family. We need to realize this morning that the defeat of Israel and the capture of the ark is a judgment against the corruption of Eli's family and the people of Israel. God warned them that, that those who despise him will be disdained by him. The priests did not honor God. They had stolen his glory. And God didn't let it go. He brought judgment. And make no mistake, church, we need to take God seriously. We cannot domesticate God for our pleasure and for our comfort. The mother of Ichabod is a strange character, especially in light of this chapter and the other characters in this scene. You can imagine the crisis of what she experienced in that day, the process, the thought that her husband is now dead, her father-in-law is dead, and she's just given birth. The roller coaster of emotions, but where are her thoughts Focused not on family, but God. Maybe she would have a word for her son as she was passing from this life to the next. Instead, she says the name of the child will be Ichabod. God's kingdom was her only thought. You might think that the greatest comfort of a sudden widow would be to hold her newborn son must marvel at the devotion of this unnamed woman. She refuses to acknowledge the birth of a son, for it says in verse 20, she did not answer or pay attention. Why? Because the purposes of God are first and highest. She chose God above all else. She made a great effort to think and to speak in her remaining moments on earth. I'm sure she loved that little baby, but listen, she loved God more. Her final words were a sermon to be heard to all those who were standing by. She preached to them of the disaster that had now come upon Israel and what should be first and chief in their life. 
And she had encouraged her people to seek what is right through the naming of her son. He would forever be remembered for what happened on that day. She displayed for them and for us that love for God is stronger than love for husband or children or even personal comfort. God's glory is supreme and his glory will not be stolen by anyone. And as I said earlier, this is a heavy chapter. God's glory is not a light thing. Two battles, lots of death, all because of disobedience. I wonder if there are churches today where there would be Ichabod written over the door. For the glory has left. So realize that the fall of leaders in churches today is not always a tragedy. It just may be the sign that God is now working to renew his people. This chapter gives us eyes to see how God does work in those that profess him but ultimately don't honor him. God will not be mocked. You cannot use God for your own benefit and continue to steal glory from him. He will make things right in his own time. And we see churches of the mainline denominations chasing after with excitement that of same-sex marriage and turning a blind eye to abortion. And maybe it's God who has closed their eyes and hardened their hearts in, in a prelude to overthrowing them. Only God knows. Our responsibility, though, sitting here this morning is to heed the warning here in 1 Samuel. Christians here who have been living for their own glory, their own comfort, have domesticated God and put him on a shelf. And be aware that won't last. God will not be caged in our comfortable homes and plan activities in the church. A domesticated God is one that is primarily there to meet all of our needs. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not there for us. We are here for him. You know, the evidence for our church, for Edgewood Bible Church, that God is glorified is not in the numbers. It's not in the size of our buildings. It's not in the number of Bible studies that we offer. It's not in the good ideas that we have for ministry. So how do we know if the Lord has left us? You know, we can't tell if we're more successful. How do we know that Ichabod isn't written above our door? It's in the holy and righteous behavior of his people that make up the church. It is found in the obedience of his people to love and to serve God above all else. You know, if the story of all stories ends here, what are we left with? You know, like many of Israel's defeats, Aphek was merely a prelude to victory. But be sure, it's God's victory. Aphek was a site of a defeat, a tremendous one, the same way that Golgotha was a site of defeat. At Aphek, God was victorious over the wicked priests, over Israel's misguided armies, over the obtuse elders, and over Eli. And at Golgotha, Christ was victorious over our sins so that we could know him and then we could give him glory with our lives. And friend, if you're here today 
and you're not trusting in Christ, I pray that you will surrender your life to him today. Your sin cries out, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed, but God's grace cries, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ has given us a way. And with that, we turn our eyes to the Lord's table this morning. We must be careful then as we partake of the Lord's Supper. I thought of this in connection to this chapter. We need to be careful because just as those men thought that the outward form of the ark, holding it in esteem but not God, we can do the same by thinking that eating this bread and drinking this juice is what saves us. It isn't. Christ saves us. And we remember him through this. Listen to the words from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. J.C. Ryle wrote about this. He said, we ought to examine ourselves whether we repent truly of our former sins, whether we steadfastly purpose to lead a new life, whether we have a lively faith in God's mercy through Christ and a thankful remembrance of his death, and whether we are in charity with all men. If our conscience can answer these questions satisfactorily, we may receive the Lord's Supper without fear. So I want to encourage you, church, as the men come forward, and as we give out the Lord's Supper to spend time while the bread and juice is being passed to examine yourself before the Lord and confess any sins. Let me pray and then we'll pass out the elements. God, we thank you that we can come together before now this time to remember your sacrifice for us on the cross. Father, remember so clearly of what you've done for us by sending your son to die on our behalf, to pay the penalty for our sins. And that through belief and trust in him, we can have access to you. We can know you and love you. Father, we thank you for that. May we remember that now as we partake of the elements this morning of bread and juice. May we remember you and what you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.